The show you are about to hear was first broadcast January 19, 2015. It's half past eight exactly, Mr. Dillon. I better get it out of the safe now. January to you. This is Bob Bro. This is Boomer Boulevard, the show where we play great old-time radio shows that we remember from when we were kids because we're baby boomers. And along the way, we try to pick out some of the nostalgic things that uh, the shows remind us of. We've got a great lineup tonight. We've got an episode of The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. We have a Jack Benny show. And we're going to finish things up as we always do on the streets of Dodge City, Kansas with an episode of Gunsmoke. So now it's time for you to get yourself all comfortable in that big chair because we are going to get started in just a minute. It's good to see you. I hope you're all well. Everybody's looking healthy and fit. Are you having a warm-up where you are? We had a really cold early part of January. I mean, right down around zero and some sub-zero wind chills. And this week, we're looking at the 40s and the 50s all week. In fact, uh, I'm recording this on Saturday, and uh, it's supposed to get up to like 57 today. So we are considering ourselves very fortunate. Glad to have you along. 
We've got a great lineup tonight, and we have a lot of fun comments to make along the way. So let's get things started by doing a little radio noir. start things off this week with a little radio noir. We are going to go back to March the 7th, 1950 for an adventure of uh, Philip Marlowe, as originally heard on CBS on that date. Of course, this one features Gerald Moore as Philip Marlowe, who we learn at the end of this episode had just been named Best Actor in a Radio Series that year by uh, one of the TV radio magazines of the era. Uh, this one has, in addition to Gerald Moore, it has Mary Lansing. Mary Lansing had was married to Frank Nelson. You know, on, on Jack Benny, yes, Frank Nelson. Uh, she was also a regular on some of the early television shows. She played uh, a regular on the old Andy Griffith show. She played uh, Martha Clark on that show and also on Mayberry RFD. She had recurring roles on a number of early television shows. Uh, Mary Lansing. Let's see who else is in this tonight. We also have John Daner, Sam Edwards, Michael Ann Barrett, Harry Bartell. Uh, so a lot of uh, the regulars. Oh, also uh, Tudor Owen. Now here is a really unique actor, Tudor Owen. If you Google him and look at images, you will recognize him immediately from some movies from the oh the 40s and the 50s. He was a huge man. He was uh, born at the turn of the century, I think, 1898 in Wales. Uh, let me just look here. This distinctive-looking bushy brow, which is true, he had big bushy eyebrows. Heavyset Welsh character actor played dozens of rustics, including sea captains, sheriffs, priests, and police officers during a 40-year-long career, which started in 1926. He was the perfect face for a period drama. At the peak of his popularity, Owen co-starred as a first mate in Captain David Grief, G-R-I-E-F. Captain David Grief in 1957, a South Seas adventure based on stories by Jack London. I, I don't remember that show. During the 40s and 50s, he was prolific on radio, lending his voice to crime dramas like Pursuit on CBS from 49 to 52 and Pete Kelly's Blues. His best-known role, however, was that of the alcoholic wharf bum named Jocko Manning, who was the sidekick of star Jack Webb and Pat Novak for hire. He also voiced Towser in one of the dogs in 101 Dalmatians, the uh, animated Disney film from 1961. Tudor Owen. Okay, so here we go, back to January, the, or excuse me, March the 7th, 1950, The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. This one is entitled The Monkey's Uncle, and it's a strange episode. <laughs> Let me, I'm going to tell you that right now. 
It's a strange episode. How much do you think a chimpanzee costs? Well, this is, uh, they're going to tell you what it costs in 1950, which really surprised me. Some other program notes when we get on the other side. Here it comes. Get this and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road, and those who travel it wind up in the gutter of the prison of the grave. This time I tangled with a mad Scotchman, a phony English lord and a beautiful blonde corpse in a freight house, all because of a butler who walked on his knuckles. It happened like this. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character in The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, with Gerald Moore starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Monkey's Uncle. Hello. Mr. Philip Marlowe, please. It's very important. This is Marlowe. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Who are you? Who's Cornelius? Where are you calling from and about what? Let's have it a slow step at a time, huh? Aye. My name's Wesley Macduff, Mr. Marlowe. All right, lead on, Macduff. I'm calling from a telephone booth opposite the Beekman Plaza Hotel on Hollywood Boulevard with... Hmm? Ashley Duke. Ashley who? Going for the Beekman Plaza. Lord Ashley Duke himself across the street. I've got to get to him. Mr. Marlowe, hurry. Meet me in the hotel lobby. Yes, but... We've got to stop them. They're going to kill Cornelius. first reaction was to forget the whole thing. But curiosity is strong stuff with me. Any triumvirate labeled Wesley McDuff, Lord Ashley, Duke, and Cornelius had to add up the screwball no matter where you started. But the word kill was still big in my vocabulary, so I buttoned the office up quickly, got down in my car, and drove over to the Beekman Plaza Hotel, where a ten-minute stand in the lobby produced nothing closer to worried Scotchman than the plaid covering in a sagging Morris chair. And at the reception desk, there was no Wesley McDuff registered or ever heard of. I'm sorry, sir. So at that, I was ready to call it quits. I turned for the door, but before I got there, I was stopped. The uniform said bellhop, and the sprinkle of freckles plus bond cowlick said all-American boy. But the shifty eyes and the narrow mouth that slid over to the side of his face when he talked said something else. Like racetrack tough. Say, uh, pardon me, sir, but uh, I happened to overhear you ask after a Scotchman. Uh, Wesley McDuff, was it? Yeah, you know where he is? Well, uh, yes, and, uh... Yes, and, uh, how much? Ten? Five. Okay, sport, five. Mm. But let's get out of the traffic, huh? Over here, under this map, like I was pointing out something to you. That's a fresh idea, yeah. Thanks. Uh, the fiver? Oh, here. Now, uh, where's McDuff? On his way to Burbank, dead drunk. You're crazy. I talked to him less than half an hour ago. He was stone sober and a long way from the party mood. Mm, could be. But 15 minutes ago, I helped Lord Ashley Duke pile him into a cab. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Ashley Duke, how does he fit? Uh, he found this McDuff in the alley outside. Oh. I was just coming back from dinner when I saw him pick the guy up. He couldn't say a word. Huh? But a Blue Shield medical card we found in his wallet read Wesley McDuff, 13 Vineland Avenue, Burbank. Boy, he was out colder than my old yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. Now I... listen, Junior, here's another five. Fill me in fast. Who's Lord Ashley Duke? 
a nightclub character, entertainer. Lives here with his wife, uh, Lady Ashley Duke, when they're in L.A. Well, this, um, is he legitimate, this Lord business? Nah, nah, but he plays it to the hilt. Why, after we piled that Macduff into the cab, he dusted his white gloves off genteel-like, <laughs> slipped the monocle he wears into his eye and grabbed another cab and shoved. Mm. He's a phony. His real name is Bert Dukes, and Milady is Gert. And on her, it shows. What do you mean, shows? That the second she gets behind her door, uh, they got Suite 312, she climbs out of her accent like it was a tight girdle. Uh. Especially when she and that niece of hers go at it. Uh, uh, yes, sir, the famous Merrimack caverns are on Route 66 near St. Louis. Oh, good evening, Mr. Fisher. Good evening, Tom. Okay, where were we? The niece, the niece. Oh, yeah, quite a doll. Her name's Merle Brimmer. Acts as a business manager, so she must also have brains. Now tell me, who's Cornelius? Cornelius? Yeah. <laughs> What's breaking you up? Who is he? Nobody but the star of the act. The Lord and Lady do a farce thing, uh, a takeoff on English drawing room stuff, and Cornelius plays the butler. Plays it in a derby and a boiled shirt, no less. Well, why the giggles? You've seen a derby and boiled shirt before? Yeah, yeah, sure I have. But on Cornelius, it looks different. You see, mister, he's a chimpanzee. <laughs> There, Cornelius definitely added screwball. But I also knew that prospective client Macduff had been sapped and piled into a cab for good riddance, which could add to less than funny. So I decided I'd look around a little longer, especially in the vicinity of Milady's chamber, number 312. When I stepped out of the elevator on the third floor, an owl-faced waiter was just piloting a dinner cart loaded down with dirty dishes out of the room. And when the cart joggled onto the corridor rug, it nearly upset a coffee pot which left the waiter's mind on the juxtaposition of cot and pot and not the door, if he'd left open inches. I waited till he passed me. Then I moved up to where I could both see and hear Lady Ashley Duke and her niece Merle exploding at each other through an after-dinner conversation. The former was built like an upended blimp with as much charm as a mooring mast. The latter was blonde and female, spy beautiful. And also, she was nonchalantly slipping a shiny 32 automatic from desk drawer to purse. Oh, now, wait a minute, Gert. Before you snap a stay, you listen to me. Why? So you can explain once more how poor Uncle Bird's idiotic mistakes are just bad luck. Ten thousand bucks worth of bad luck. Nuts. Bird don't know anything about investments. He shouldn't be allowed to touch a red cent. And my pretty, from here on out, that's exactly the way it's going to be. Believe me. Oh, cut it, Gert, and quit blaming Uncle Bert and me. Are you kidding? Why shouldn't I blame the two of you? He's a jerk, and you... I never wanted you with us in the first place, my niece. <laughs> oh, shut up. And remember, dear aunt, your husband likes me around. I'm good for his morale, he says. He'll never let you fire me. So don't waste your breath. Auntie, get out of here. Go on, get down to the freight house and keep your eyes open. We don't want to lose Cornelius. Don't worry, darling. Guard duty's an old specialty of mine. Yes, who is it? Name's Marlowe. I'd like to see Lord Ashley Duke. Oh, well, I... Oh, well... Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> He's not in, but what did you want to see him about? Oh, uh, business. Can you help me? Perhaps. You see, I'm his uh, business... She used to be his business manager. She was just leaving, weren't you, Merle Darling? Yes, Merle Darling was. Mr. Marlowe, Lady Ashley Duke. Goodbye, Auntie. Unhappy, huh? Oh, rather. Uh, now, sir, to save each other's time, let me be blunt. Lord Ashley Duke is no longer interested in making any investments whatsoever, nor will he be interested at a future date. Is that clear, sir? Yes, like well water, Lady Ashley Duke, and if I were looking for an investor, I'd keep it in mind. But you see, I'm a private detective working for Wesley Macduff. What? A paper? 
A lousy paper pushing his way uh, in here. I'll Why take are it you? Easy, easy, Gertie. Let go. Get your filthy hands off me. Sure. Just as soon as you get back in a neutral. I also want to save us time, and I want to save Cornelius, too. Now, do we talk or wrestle? Which? Oh, all right. Seven weeks ago, Lord Ashley Duke and I bought Cornelius from that crazy monkey razor out in Burbank. We paid Macduff $30,000 for a run-down 17-year-old chimpanzee. Well, then why do you want to kill him? Macduff thinks you're going to. Yeah, Macduff's crazy. Just because we change our minds and instead of staying here in L.A., decide to go on the road. Macduff thinks Cornelius will catch cold and die. So he wants him back. Yeah, but you'll get your money back. Yeah, but what about the seven weeks of work just to teach him to drop a glass? Not only that, he's a wonderful imitator. I can see your point. Besides, a deal's a deal. And we're taking the risk of Cornelius' death, not the loon who runs that Burbank animal farm. Why, that Scotchman thinks every animal in the joint's related to him. <laughs> it's an old idea, honey. But look, Lady Ash... That's what? We've had our talk, people. Now get out. Go on. Go on, get out before I forget I'm, uh, a lady. Over here, Tompkins. What is it? A telephone call, sir. Booth four, this way, please. Make out all right up there? Jim Dandy. Good. Now, uh, if you feel I was underpaid, I feel we uh... came out even, Buster. Besides, I'm running low on farthings. Unless, uh... Yes? You know where the freight house Cornelius calls home is located. Uh Uh-uh. Blank. Okay. So long, Tompkins. Hello. Mr. Marlowe? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You all right, McDuff? It takes more than a foul blow in the dark to stop me, man. And it's just what Lord Ashley Duke is going to discover in many minutes. What do you mean? That I've run out of patience. I ain't going to act, not talk. I'm about to take Cornelius back with my own hands, and I want you to help oh, me. Oh, now, wait a minute. Now, look, man, I'm in a drugstore at Pershing Square, close by the freight house where Cornelius is caged for shipment. I want you to but meet you me. can't steal him, McDuff. Ah, I, I can. Steal him and disguise the animal so they'll ne'er be able to claim him again. So they won't be able to kill him. McDuff, I can't go along with that. Then I chose the wrong man. Oh. There's precious little time left, Mr. Marlowe. Tomorrow they leave Los Angeles. Now, will you help me? No. Beside McDuff, you'll never get away with it. There's a girl, Ashley Duke's niece, who's got a gun, and I... Macduff. Macduff! All the way from the phone booth through the lobby into my car outside, I kept telling myself three things. One, I wasn't working for Macduff. Two, Macduff was about to commit a crime. And three, I couldn't worry about the gun in Merle Brimmer's purse. It was all none of my business. So when I was in behind the wheel of my car, I pointed it toward my apartment on Franklin, lit a cigarette, and forgot about the whole thing. But a block later, I threw the cigarette out, turned, and headed for Pershing Square. Scots with animal farms in Burbank obviously weren't the only crazy people in Los Angeles. After arriving at Pershing Square, I was 30 minutes piling up wisecracks, frozen stairs, and assorted giggles before I hit pay dirt. A bottle boy with a great memory. Yeah, sure, I know the place. Only spot around, it'll ship live animals along with the rest of the stuff that they handle. Anything from an eel to an elephant. How about pink ones? They got those, too. That's what I thought. Yeah, I worked there once during during the Christmas rush. Made the price of a fifth in one day. Now, look, look, you'll do it again right now if you can tell me one thing. The address, what is it? Uh, It's um, 44... Come on, come on. 
to stick with it. Boy. <laughs> Here's five. Crawl back in the bottle. I'll see you. The neighborhood was half residential, half industrial, and all run down, including the freight house, which was two windowless stories of dirty red brick hovering over a loading ramp on a deserted, shadowy street. I started slowly toward it when suddenly... A side door flew open and an excited old man with flashlight and giant key ring that spelled Night Watchman leaped out of the building, arms and legs going like twin beaters on a mixmaster. Hey, hey, Pop! Hold it, is it the chimp? Yes, and he's raising the roof in there. Yeah? If I shoot him, I'll be fired. He's worth a fortune. Yeah, I know all about it. Come on, I'll give you a hand. Oh, okay, good. Well, let's go. Where is he? Upstairs, hanging in one window at the back. I just turned the lights on and there he was. Oh. When he seen me... Grabbed a stick from the floor and started beating things with it. Oh, fine. And then he broke the window and began to swing on the block and tackle. It runs outside from the roof to the ground. Look, there he is. Yeah, still beating. Hey, Doc, Bobby's going to fling it. There he goes, down the roof. And away. Well, all right, Pop, we better call the Look, cops. Over there, near his empty cage. It's a girl. Blood all over her head. Holy smoke. Merle Brimmer. She did? Beat to death with a stick the chimp just threw at us. Then, then you think the monkey did it? I don't know. Maybe yes, maybe no. He's a great imitator, Pop. It could have been somebody else. Not the monkey? Then who? Who else? A monkey's uncle. A Scotchman named Macduff. walked around the body of the girl on the freight house floor. I took a close look at the cage lock. There was no doubt that it had been forced from the outside. The watchman staring down at the body was shaking like a motorcycle with square wheels. So I took him by the arm and walked him down the stairs and outside for some air. It's, it's terrible. I don't know what to do. Nothing like this ever happened here before, and the boss never told me what I'm supposed to do in a case like this. Well, it's easy. Just call the police. The police? Yeah. Also, the SPCA and Frank Buck. Chances are we'll need them all before the night's over. Okay, mister. Thanks, I should... Hey, who's that getting out of that cab? From the top hat cape and spats, I'd say it was one Lord Ashley Duke, the legal owner of the chimp. Oh, what are you two blighters staring at? Out of my way. Uh, just a moment, just a moment before you go inside. I want to talk to you, Lord Ashley Duke. Uh, you know my name, do you? Well, now, my job, that's interesting. I don't know you, sir. I'll survive. Why'd you come down here tonight? Because I heard that my niece was here, protecting my property. And that's no suitable task for a girl. Not capable to do that sort of thing, you know. It's a man's job, you know. I had a beastly time finding the place, too. You haven't been here before, huh? Oh, yes, yes. A couple of days ago. But that, that, that was in broad daylight. Uh, stand aside, One sir. thing more. Hmm? Why did you slug Wesley McDuff tonight and dump him in a cab? Just who are you, anyway? Private detective Philip Marlowe's name. Mm -hmm. Sounds British enough. About as British as you are. Hmm? Oh, yeah. And you, I presume, are the watchman. Yes, sir. That's me, your highness. What about Macduff, your highness? There's no choice. The blighter wanted to welch on the transaction we've made. I refused and he threatened me. So I bopped him. And then <laughs> made out he was intoxicated, you know. Packed him off in a cabin. Oh, 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 oh. Yeah. <clears throat> Nevertheless, when a man sells me a monkey... By George, that monkey is mine. 
And thought that treatment might bring Macduff to his bloody senses. Well, it didn't. It made him tougher. And what's more, the chimpanzee is gone. And Cornelius is gone. Hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Come on, Pop. Uh, okay. where she was when we found her. And that crazy monkey was in here just jumping up and down like he was throwing a fit. It was McDuff. McDuff, that's who it was. That madman. Hurry, Mackerel. What was that? I don't know, but I'm going to find out. You stay here. The scream had come from the architectural blunder next door. It was one of those big gingerbread houses left over from the 1800s, and I got there just in time to meet the witch. The scaly front portal was jerked open in front of me, and there she stood. Like a pool cue in high panic, topped by a head of brittle orange hair, half down up tight in curlers, the other half streaming over her face. She clutched frantically at the stained kimono with one hand and me with the other. Take it easy. Hold it, will you? What's going on? Oh, oh, that face, that awful face. What face? The ugliest thing I ever seen. Oh, protect me. It's a fierce All right, take it easy. Will you calm down and tell me what happened? I was upstairs in my room taking my yeah. hair down. When I happened to look over at the window, and there was that face shoved right up against the glass. Oh, I swear I never seen nothing like that since before I took the cure, mister. All right, now listen, it had I... hair all over it, and red eyes and big grinning mouth. What was like one of them giant gorillas they got in the movie. That's Cornelius, all right. Where's the room? Oh, up there at the head of them stairs. Oh. Hey, you ain't going up there and leave me all alone, I... Well, then come along. Corny's a trained chimp. He won't hurt you. Oh, no, not me, brother. I'm getting... Where? Where? Tell me, is that a passage out there between the houses? Oh, no, no, it's a kind of an airshift, only it's closed up at the back. Oh, you mean he can't get through to the alley? Yeah, yeah, that's right. There's no way out of there except the street. All right, come on, let's get outside. We got him cornered. Oh, you got him cornered, baby, mister, not me. I don't want nothing more to do with that ugly puss. The airshaft was a scant 18 inches wide and as dark and cluttered as the inside of a goat pen with odors to match. I worked my way back as far as the bashful light from the street reached. Oh, be careful in there, mister. And I stopped and listened. But Cornelius was a genius. There wasn't a sound. And I couldn't see my hand in front of my face to say nothing of a black-haired chimpanzee who was no doubt getting a big kick out of the entire procedure. I decided to try psychology on him. So I called in what I hoped was a firm but friendly voice, and it got me no place. I groped my way along the wall of the drain pipe and called again. This time shorter on the friendly and longer on the firm, which was a mistake. The drain pipe should have given me a hint, but it didn't. Oh! Oh! What? What? Look at what snap out of it. What's the matter? He's gone. Hold on, who? Who, who's gone? That gorilla. Oh. It, it was up on the drain pipe. Oh. It hit you on the head with something that oh. ran right past me and oh. got away in a taxi. Oh, come on, let's get out oh, of here. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait a minute, baby. I I could have sworn you said the, the monkey took a taxi. Yeah, you did. I watched the whole oh, thing. Oh, my. As soon as it got out in the street, a man in a checkered tan with a crooked stick in his hand came out from between them buildings over there and called it. Uh. They ran up to a taxi. The driver jumped out and they drove away. I seen him. The driver jumped out and they drove away? Yeah, I don't think you took the cure soon enough. Well, I seen something else, too. Huh? A fat breed in a high hat and spats came charging out of the freight house yeah. there, saw the cab leaving, got in a green coupe that green was parked coupe. in front and took off. Holy after. smoke, that's my car. Yeah, oh, it's gone. How do you like that? Yeah. 
Now maybe you'll believe me, huh? Every screwy word, sweetheart. Now look, you didn't happen to see... Driver there. Did anybody see what happened? I gotta have a witness. My taxi was hijacked off of me by two crazy guys. One of them looked like an ape, exactly like an ape. Move over, bud. We're on the same raft. My car's gone, too. Tell me what happened, will you? Start at the top. Okay. Tonight I bring this big shot in a high hat down here to the freight house. He hops out, tells me to wait, see? Yeah. So I drive down the block and turn around. I, I, I'm parked right over there, trying to grab a quick 40 winks. When up comes this loon. A Scotchman? Yeah, that's him. Yeah. He throws me a fast address and starts getting in, see? I politely tell him the flag is down, but he keeps coming. You see, it's just yeah, like Yeah, yeah, I, I know it's just like it. Now, look, did you ever see this Scotchman before? No, never. I figure maybe he's got a snood full of happy days, nothing more. Uh -huh. So I'm reaching over to block him when a pair of hands that feels like a doormat with muscles mm. grabs me around the neck. I twist around and look, and what do I see? Cornelius. Him I don't know, but an ape man is crawling in my wind. So help me, I'm rubbing noses with a missing link. Yeah, I know. Then what happened? Mac, I jump out of the taxi, and before I know it, the old geezer gives me a claw with his stick, piles in, the next thing, my taxi's gone just like that. You gotta believe me, somebody's gotta back me up. Mm. If I try this on the cops, they'll have me in a padded cell in no time. Well, don't worry about it, fella. Just reach hard for that address the Scotchman gave you. Can you remember it? Oh, sure. Uh, let me see, it was the, uh, the, uh, the Rushmore. Rushmore. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, a down-at-the-heels motel out on Vernon. Yeah. Somewhere around uh, Beverly Boulevard. Ed Nathan's... Oh, stepped on something here on the sidewalk. Oh, you sure did, cutie. Smashed it, too. It looks like somebody's watch crystal. Sure, ladies' watch crystal. Oh, a nice one. See, it had this hunk of black ribbon with it. Ladies' what? Hey, wait a minute. Let me see that. Sure, here. It's velvet, see? Yeah, yeah, it sure is. That doesn't fit. Not here. No one's been here but the three of us and the chimp. So long, kids. Hey, hey, wait. Where are you I'm going to talk to a liar about a murder. I'll see you later at headquarters, I hope. But what about my time? Talk to the night watchman in the freight house. You'll be good for each other. I was two blocks on foot finding another taxi in 15 minutes getting from there out to the motel, worrying all the way because I'd left my gun under the front seat of my car. Business was slow at the Rushmore. The only cabin that showed a light was the last in the rear, next to the alley. I was sure of what I'd find inside. In spite of the fact that neither the stolen cab nor my coupe was any place in sight. When I heard the voices, I decided to bluff it. I went up to the front door and pressed my ear against the flimsy panel. Anyway, a bargain's a bargain, but Duff, you'd have done better to stick by it. I'd have stuck by it if ye had your scurvy crook. Ah, don't reach for your chain. It's a little late for that. You're in a real jam now. I'm going to see you blamed for my niece's murder. But I didn't kill her. I pushed her down. I. Yeah. She caught me unlucking Cornelia's cage and tried to stop me. But I didn't kill her. You did that. Yes, yes, but who knows that? Except you and the monk there. And he can't talk. And you won't believe me. Ah, you daft man. Why did you do it? Because I had to. Because Merle was bleeding me to death. Every cent I could lay my hands on. I had to buy her silence. I had to pretend to lose thousands in poor investments. Well... Merle got what was coming to her, and you gave me that chance. I found her on the floor where you left her and simply finished the job. Then you ran off and came back in that taxi 15 minutes later, the very spirit of innocence. I saw you. Very well, Lord Ashley Duke. You've got me as a thief, too, so get on with it. Get on with your filthy evil plan. I'm ready. Don't be in a hurry, McDuff. Stay where you are, Ashley. Don't bother turning around. Just drop the gun. Oh, I knew you'd not let me down, laddie. I knew it. Oh, what's this, old boy? It's rather an untimely hit. Skip the accent, Birch. You won't need it where you're going. Drop that gun, I said. Or you'll move. Shoot me with that pipe in your pocket. Marlowe, 
I've got your gun. Here in my hand, and you know it. Want to bet? Well, with the light out... Yes, Ashley! Strange thing, lad. He hit you but once, huh? but there are two lumps on your skull. Do you can this condition? Never mind, skip it. I don't want to talk about it. Oh. Where's Ashley? Trust up there in the corner. He should be coming around soon. You see, Cornelius, as you've no doubt learned, is a great imitator. When he saw Ashley bat you on the head with a gun, yeah. he grabbed McCain, leaped up on the dresser there, and batted Ashley on the head. Oh, no, no. Not with this headache. Hey. Don't tell me I'm indebted to that. Just when I was learning to hate him. Hey, we both are, for our lives. Uh, but tell me, what does a black velvet ribbon and a, a watch crystal mean? He mumbled that over and over while we, uh, you were out. Oh. Well, that's how I knew Ashley was a liar and a killer. See, the cab driver stepped on a round piece of glass that looked like a watch crystal with a ribbon attached. Uh-huh. Happened on the sidewalk in front of an air shaft. Actually, the... Oh, actually, the glass was a monocle. Oh, dropped by Lord <sighs> Ashley Duke. No, Ashley'd never been at that spot. No? But if Cornelius had, and if Cornelius dropped the monocle, it indicated that Lord Ashley Duke had been someplace with Cornelius early at night, you see? Ah. That could only be the freight house. Yet Ashley claimed he hadn't been there for two days. Oh, I see. Oh, you do. Oh, my head. How about you, Cornelius? <laughs> Yeah, well, that's one of the best answers I've had tonight. It didn't take long at police headquarters. Maybe an hour altogether. A killer was locked up for trial, and the key witness ate three erasers, spilled a quart of ink, and broke a window before the homicide boys finally gave up. I watched the phony Lord Ashley Duke walk down the corridor to his cell. Any connection he had with man was just the category. Then I watched Macduff and company leave, too. A couple of regular guys. A monkey and a monkey's uncle. A genuine old Scott who loved life and his shuffling friend whose only limitation was his inability to speak. But he communicated all right. In the only language that means anything. Love of one creature for another. The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, bringing you Raymond Chandler's most famous character, star Gerald Moore are produced and directed by Norman MacDonald and are written for radio by Robert Mitchell and Gene Levitt. As a special note of interest, Philip Marlowe fans, you'll be glad to know that radio and television Life magazine has this week named Gerald Moore as the best male actor in radio. Featured in our cast were Mary Lansing, John Daner, Tudor Owen, Sam Edwards, Michael Ann Barrett, Harry Bartell, and Junius Matthews. The special music is composed and conducted by Richard Arant. Be sure and be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says... This time a case-hardened car hop knocked me down a flight of stairs. An honest woman was strangled by a green silk sash. 
and a simpering dandy was shot to death. All because of a run-of-the-mill traffic accident 500 miles away. You hear them all on CBS, and one of the funniest parts of that all comes from the bird brain of a woman, Miss Gracie Allen of Burns and Allen. Top troopers on the American stage for years, top radio stars after that, George and Gracie are now playing a big part in CBS's great Wednesday night lineup. Bing Crosby, Groucho Marx, George and Gracie, Dr. Christian. Join George Burns and Gracie Allen this Wednesday night on most of the same CBS stations. This is Roy Rowan speaking. Now, stay tuned for Pursuit, which follows immediately over most of the same CBS stations. This is CBS, where Burns and Allen are heard every Wednesday night, the Columbia Broadcasting System. from March the 7th, 1950. The Monkey's Uncle on the Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Loved Gerald Moore in that role. Sometimes the scripts weren't the best, but Gerald Moore, I just loved his laid-back attitude. <laughs> Nothing phased him, you know? He just always was just, I just loved the way he reacted. Couple, couple program notes on this one. Being an old... Uh, L.A. resident or Long Beach resident, knowing Southern California, a couple things. Philip Marlowe, you, you notice, he lived in Hollywood there on Franklin Avenue. Franklin Avenue runs parallel to Hollywood Boulevard, sort of at the top of Hollywood, right at the base of the mountains. In fact, uh, Milt Larson, who does a show on Yesterday USA, owns the Magic Castle that's right there, I believe, on Franklin Avenue, just up above the Chinese Theater. Right behind the Chinese Theater, it slowly starts going uphill, and then it starts up into the Hollywood Hills. And so the Magic Castle is maybe just a fraction of the way up the hill, and then you go on up, and you go up where Frank Brzee lives, and a lot of the movie stars and stuff up, up in the hills, and they overlook Hollywood. At any rate, I noticed that uh, they he had to go to Pershing Square, Pershing Square is downtown Los Angeles, uh, sort of in the financial district, around 6th Street and, uh, oh, I think it's Hill Street, right in, in, in that area. And the Hollywood Freeway, or the 101, would be a very easy way to get there these days, and you'd get there in maybe about 10 minutes if there's no traffic. Uh, if there's traffic, which, you know, there is in Southern California, it would take you much longer, but I was just thinking that I don't believe there was any freeways in 1950. If there was, it was probably the Pasadena Freeway, which went from downtown L.A. up to Pasadena. It's one of the first ones. It's funny, they had not yet mastered the on-ramps. And a lot of the on-ramps on the old Pasadena Freeway were practically like making right-hand turns, you know, at an intersection. They weren't very long, and so you had to get up to speed very, very quickly. They learned, and later on. But at any rate, I was just thinking to go from, uh, he was at a hotel in Hollywood, to go down to Pershing Square would have required all surface streets. Now, if you've never been in L.A., you, you won't appreciate this, but it, it's a long way. I mean, he would have either gone down 6th Street or Wilshire Boulevard, or, or, or excuse me, down Highland Avenue, no doubt, uh, from where he was there on Franklin, all the way down to either 6th Street or Wilshire Boulevard, which is, uh, you know, just block after block after block after block after block after block. 
block of city traffic, most of those blocks had uh, traffic lights on the corners. And uh, then he would have had to make a left and go down either 6th or Wilshire all the way down into downtown. I mean, that's a long distance. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I guess as the crow flies, it's probably 8 or 9 miles, 10 miles. But it just, I don't know, it just struck me that how different travel is today as opposed to what it was in, in 1950. Also, it just uh, kind of cracked me up that uh, the bellboy was distracted when he was talking to Marlowe and he said, Oh, yes, sir. He says, yeah, Merrimack Caverns on Route 66 in Missouri. Uh, this, is, this is a hotel in Hollywood. And when someone is coming up to him and asking him for directions to the Merrimack Caverns, which is just right outside St. Louis here. Now, I, I can understand if somebody going into a hotel lobby in St. Louis, and say, but, you know, that'd be like going into the uh, a hotel lobby in New Orleans and saying, excuse me, can you give me directions to Old Faithful? In Yellowstone Park, please? <laughs> uh, I don't know. It's, it's just very funny. Merrimack Caverns is a sort of a, had been for a long time a tourist attraction here. You used to see billboards all over the place. I, I guess there's probably still a few. There's, there's a couple caves, uh, cave systems here near St. Louis. Let's see, what else? Oh, he made the comment, um, he said, well, you either have to call the police, the SPCA, which of course is the Society for Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, or Frank Buck. Now, I imagine most of you know who Frank Buck was, but for those of you that don't, he was called an animal collector. Frank Howard Buck lived from 19, or excuse me, 1884 to 1950. He was a hunter and collector of animals, as well as a movie actor, director, writer, and producer. He's known for his book, Bring Him Back Alive, and his 1930s and 40s jungle adventure movies including Wild Cargo, Jungle Cavalcade, uh, Killer of the Amazon, and uh, a number of others, many of which included staged fights to the death between formidable beasts. So he was, he was kind of like Clyde Beatty. He also traveled with Ringling Brothers Circus one season or a couple seasons, and uh, uh, he refused to join the union, which was interesting. He was supposed to belong to an actor's union. And he, he just wouldn't do it. He said that he was, he was uh, a scientist. And he at one time had been actually manager of the San Diego Zoo, but he had a falling out with the owner. This was in the early days of the San Diego Zoo. But I just wonder if uh, Frank Buck would be hailed as a hero of animal rights today or if he would be uh, considered somewhat of a uh, villain the way animals have been handled over the years has certainly changed. But he was uh, always photographed in the pith helmet and out on the safaris. Frank Buck. Okay, well, that uh, wraps up my program notes, I believe, here on uh, Philip Marlowe. So we'll have more Philip Marlowe in the weeks ahead.
All right, let's head on over to the Comedy Corner. Something familiar. Something peculiar. Something for everyone. A comedy tonight. Ah! Something appealing. Something appalling. Something for everyone. A comedy tonight. Nothing with kings. Nothing with crowns. Bring on the lovers, liars, and Situation, no complications. Nothing portentous or polite. Ready tomorrow, comedy tonight. <laughs> okay, for our comedy corner tonight, we are going to go back to January the 1st of 1950. So this was the first day of the new decade. And this is an episode of the Jack Benny Show, as uh, we heard on CBS. And the name of this episode is, uh, well, the Benny Shows really didn't have formal names. This is referred to in a number of different ways. One of them is Jack Gets Stood Up, uh, Jack Misses Mary's New Year's Eve Party. You recall that the Benny Show was always done in two parts. There's really two storylines. And the first storyline here is uh, Jack reminiscing, enjoying some time with uh, the people uh, on his show, his staff, talking about uh, how much he appreciates them. And it's, it's kind of touching, really, and it's, it, there's some funny bits, too. The second part has to do with Jack's date for New Year's Eve. And there's a line in here that gets a very, very big laugh. And it's partly because it's a surprise. I'm sure you'll pick it out right away. But also, just um, my opinion, this show has a very strange ending, this episode. Pretty well-written show all the way through, and then the ending just sort of goes flat, almost like they didn't know how to, to get out of it. But that, that's my opinion. Maybe you won't feel that way. All right, here we go, back to January the 1st, 1950, The Jack Benny Show. The Jack Benny Program, transcribed, presented by Lucky Strike. The Lucky Strike Program, starring Jack Benny, with Mary Livingston, Phil Harris, Rochester, Dennis Day, the Sportsman Quartet, and yours truly, Don Wilson. Yes, this is New Year's Day. And we're going to take you to the home of Mary Livingston in Beverly Hills. At the moment, Mary and her maid Pauline are straightening up the house after last night's celebration. Uh, now, Pauline, when you finish with the living room, start in the den, please. Yes, ma'am. Gee, Miss Livingston, that was a wonderful party. You sure are a swell hostess. Well, thanks. Do you really think my guests had a good time? Oh, yes. Especially Dennis Day. I'll bet he never drank champagne before. <laughs> You're right, Pauline. He took one drink, grabbed a bottle of cash, and poured it on his head and yelled, Hey, look at me. I'm Red Skelton. <laughs> he really was cute, though. He might have been cute then, but when he caught me under the mistletoe, he was a mean little kid. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least everybody had a lot of fun. Yeah. And you can thank your sister, Babe, for that. She was the life of the party. Yeah. She's really a card. That was quite a gag coming to a New Year's Eve party dressed in overalls. 
That was no gag. She had to go to work at one o'clock. <laughs> oh, that's a shame having to work on a holiday. Holiday or no holiday, smudge pots have to be lit. <laughs> But Babe was a lot of fun, and so was Phil Harris. But you know what? I don't remember seeing Mr. Harris leave. Oh, he never did leave, Pauline. He didn't? Where is he? You're standing on him. Uh, <laughs> oh, Miss Livingston, the way you tease me. Now go ahead, Pauline. Take those glasses out to the kitchen. Yes, ma'am. You know, it's a shame that Mr. Benny wasn't at your party last night. Was he ill? No, no, he was all right. Well, I know you invited him. Why didn't he come? Well, it's a long story, Paulie, and it all started yesterday evening at CBS. After our usual rehearsal, the entire cast gathered in Jack's dressing room to wish each other a happy new year. Well, kids, here we are at the end of another year. And it brings a warm glow to my heart having all of you who have been with me so many years Gathered here in my dressing room. Well, Jack, that's sweet. I feel that I'm a very fortunate man to have such capable people and such true friends. Oh, Jackson. <laughs> Not only are we bound together in friendship, but the quality of your individual performances has been a personal demonstration of your loyalty to me. Well, thanks, Jack. So to you, my associates, as well as friends, I just want to say in all sincerity that I'm proud of each and every one of you. Last year, our hooper was down. He spit in our eye. <laughs> Dennis, now this is a serious moment, and I meant every word of it. Well, I think we better break this up and get started for Livy's party. Want to drive over with me, Jackson? Uh, Phil, Jack's not coming to my party. What? That's right, Phil. You kids will have to get along without little Jackie. I got a date myself. I got a date all for myself. A date? Yes, sir. In fact, I'm going to pick her up in about half an hour. Well, so that's why you came to rehearsal in top hat, white tie, and tails, huh? Yep. I look kind of classy, don't I, Phil? Classy? You look like the head pot man in a forest lawn flower shop. <laughs> all right, Phil, all right. Hey, Mr. Benny, who have you got this date with? Oh, she's a girl that I met just recently. Her name is Gloria. Gloria? Do we know her? What's she look like, Jackson? Uh, 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 no more questions. I know you're all curious, but I'm not talking. Well, so the old man is stepping out, huh? Phil, I'm not an old man. You keep saying that all the time, and you know my age as well as I do. Weller. <laughs> Weller? This is a word? <laughs> Weller? Jackson, if you think I'm hard to understand now, catch me at midnight. <laughs> Phil, that's when I'm my wellest. <laughs> well, there's no use trying to be sentimental around this gang. Hey, Dennis, how about singing a number before we leave? Yes, Dennis, sing something lively. Well, would you like to hear I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts? Oh, oh yes! Come on, Down at an English fair, one evening I was there, when I heard a showman shouting underneath a flare, I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts, oh there they are, a-standing in a row, 
big one, small one, some as big as your head. Give him the twist, a flick of the wrist, that's what the showman said. How I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts. Every ball you throw will make me rich. Oh, there stands me wife, the idol of me life. Sing and roll a bell of all the penny a bit. Roll a bowl, 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 a and at the present rate of exchange, that's practically nothing. So step right up, step right out. Oh, I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts. Oh, every ball you throw will make me rich. Oh, there stands me wife, the idol of me life. Sing and roll a bowl of all the pity of you. Wonderful, Dennis. And the next time we hear you sing, it will be 1950. Right you are, Governor. <laughs> now, kids. <laughs> now, kids, before we leave, I've got a little surprise for you. It's right here in the dressing table. There. How's that? Jack, a bottle of champagne. Yes, sir. I'm going to open it. We'll drink a toast before we leave. Don, hand me that towel so I can wrap it around the bottle. There you are, Jack. Don't forget to loosen them wires, Jackson. I have, I have. Look out, Mary, this cork is liable to fly. Hmm, <clears throat> <clears throat> this cork is awfully tight. Let me try it, Jack. No, no, Don, I'll pull it out with my teeth. I can do it. Yeah, okay. <clears throat> <clears throat> Gosh, Jack, I never thought you could... Jack. Jack. Oh, my goodness, he swallowed the cork. Jack! Jack! Don't get excited, Murray. I'll pat him on the back. <laughs> well, kids, now that the champagne's open, we'll drink a toast. Mary, here's a glass for you. Don, Dennis. Now, where's Phil? Well, he's over by the water cooler. I'll be right with you, Jackson. Phil. Phil. Phil, for heaven's sake, what are you drinking all that water for? Jackson, I got a long night ahead of me, and I want to get them chasers out of the way. <laughs> I knew you'd have a good reason. All right, kids, here's to a very... Come in. Well, if it isn't Mel Blanc. Hiya, Mel. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, everybody. Say, Mel, it was awfully nice of you to drop in. Oh, thanks, Mr. Benny. And I hope in the coming year you'll be able to use me on your program. You know, I didn't work too much this season. Well, it's not my fault, Mel. 
I use you when I can, but after all, how often can I hire someone just to imitate Al Jolson? Ah. <laughs> you see, it's hardly worth it. Yeah, but I got... I got a wife and six kids. Last week, I couldn't even afford to buy a Christmas tree. No. Yeah. My wife can't... My kids can't go to school because they ain't got no shoes, and my wife is walking around in rags, and the rent is past due. Gee. Things get any worse, I'll have to sell my Cadillac. <laughs> oh, well, in that case, I'll do all I can, Mel. Come in. Happy New Year, everybody. Well, Mr. Kittle, it's sure nice of you to come in and see us on New Year's Eve. Yes, I just dropped by to wish everybody season's greetings. Well, Mr. Kittle, I'm having a party at my house tonight. Would you like to come? Oh, bless your heart, Miss Livingston. <laughs> but tonight I'm taking my wife out formal. And for this occasion, I'm renting a car. Renting a car? Where are you taking her? To Simon's Drive-In. <laughs> Oh, oh, Mr. Kitzel, you're joking. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> well, Mr. Kitzel, I just opened a bottle of champagne. How about having a drink with us? Ooh, thank you, and I'd like to propose a toast. Yeah, yeah. 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 A toast. Go ahead, Mr. Kitzel. Well, here's to Jack Benny, who's just like good wine. He improves as he ages, but he stays 39. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Kitzel, and here's to you. Yes, Now, I'd like to propose a toast to every member of my cast. Mary, I'm going to start with you. Now, hold up your glass. Mary, you've been on my program almost 18 years. And, and, isn't that funny? There's, there's so much I want to say, but I don't know how to say it. Well, you don't have to say it, Jack. I know what you mean. And Phil? Yeah, Dad. <laughs> Phil, I want to drink to you, too. You've been with me 14 years, and Phil, sometimes you rib me a little, but I love you. And you've certainly gone a long way. Thanks, Jackson. You want to know something? There's no one who takes more pride in my being on your program than my father. Your father? Yep. He knew it was always my ambition to be on your show. And the day you signed me up, I went home, showed my father the contract, and he looked at me and said, Congratulations. It makes me happy to know that you finally reached your goal, son. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he said goal, son! <laughs> anyway, I thought you'd gone. Well, don't get mad, Mr. Benny. I just hung around because I want you to hear a song I recorded for Capitol Records. Mel, you recorded a song? Yeah, Toot Toot Tootsie, Goodbye. Oh, Jolson again, huh? Yeah, but this is different. If you just listened to it, you'd want to put it on your program. Well, okay, Mel, let's hear it. How about it, fellas? Tut, 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 say, goodbye. Tut, 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 say, don't cry. Let you to train, let us Away from you, no wife can tell out that it makes me, get me, cook me, and then, 
I use that number on my program. Oh, thanks, Mr. Benny. Goodbye, everybody. Well, happy, happy, happy New Year. Happy New Year. You know, kids, he really did a great imitation of Jolson. How do you like the way he imitated the sportsman quartet? That kid's clever. <laughs> he sure is. Now, what was I saying before Mel did his song? Uh, you were drinking a toast to all of us. Oh, yes. Don, you're next. Hold up your glass, Don. Don, as the year comes to a close, I want you to know that my association with you is a very happy one. You're not only a fine announcer, but a gentleman, a scholar, and a friend. Well, thank you, Jack. Uh, Don, how long have you been with Jack? Nine years. Nine years? No, no, Don, you've been with me 16. Oh, you're counting the seven years you had me auditioning. Good, <laughs> you. Mean you got it. Oh, you got to count everything. <laughs> anyway, Don, here's to you. Good luck. And now, Dennis. Yes, sir? Dennis, you've been with me almost 11 years. I remember the day you first came on my program. You were young. You were naive. But you had a beautiful singing voice. And as the years went by, your voice became more matured, more beautiful than ever. And then, suddenly, you blossomed out. And now, now you're a star in your own right. My show is better than yours. <laughs> Dennis, Dennis, look at me. Yes, sir. Turn away again. <laughs> I know, it's my own... <laughs> it's my own fault. Uh, Jack, I've got to run home now and get things ready for my party tonight. Okay, Mary. Jack, are you sure you don't want to join us? No, no, Mary, not tonight. In fact, I'm going to pick my girl up in about ten minutes. Well, Jackson, why don't you bring her over to Livy's house? No, no, my plans are all made. Gloria and I are going to have cocktails at Ciro's, dinner at Romanoff, and then dance in the new year at the Macombo. Yes, sir. Well, run along, kids. Have a good time at the party, and don't worry about me. I'll... Well, I'll answer, Jack. Hello? Yes, he's here. Who's calling? Oh, Jack, it's for you. It's Gloria. Gloria? Mm. Give me that phone. Hello, Gloria. I'm all ready and raring to go. I'll pick you up in about... What? (laughs) 
You can't? But, Gloria, I've got reservations and everything. And I'm all dressed. But look, of course I believe you. But, gee, it's New Year's Eve. You gotta go. Oh, now, now look, Gloria, isn't there some way you can make it? Oh. Well, if you, you can't, I, I guess you just can't. So long, then. Goodbye. Well, what are you all staring at? <laughs> Gloria had a very good excuse, and she's nuts about me, too. Well, she is. Jack, as long as your date is off, how about coming over to my party? Yeah, Jackson, come on. We're going to have a lot of fun. No, thanks. I don't feel like going anywhere. Oh, come on, Jack. Don't be so stubborn. I'm not stubborn. I just don't feel like going. Jackson, sometimes you act oh, like... Oh, Phil. Phil, leave him alone. Uh, Jack, the party is at my house, and if you change your mind and want to come, I, I'd love to have you. Thanks, Mary, but I'm going home. Where's my top hat and gloves? Oh, here they are. Happy New Year, everybody. Happy, Happy New, New Year, Year, Jack. So long. Gee, I wish Jack hadn't walked out like that. It makes me feel awful. Yeah. Well, it's no fun for him being alone on New Year's Eve. Well, maybe he'd feel worse in a crowd. I forgot my cane. <laughs> Here it is. Not so long. Happy New Year, Mr. Benny. Huh? Oh, oh Happy New Year, Mike. Is your rehearsal over? Yeah. Then now you're stepping out, eh? No, I'm just going home. You know, New Year's Eve is just another night to me. Uh, good night, Mike. <laughs> See you tomorrow. Good night, Mr. Benny, and a happy New Year. Happy New Year, Mike. Bud. Maybe on this side of the street. Hiya, Ruth. Huh? Well, remember me? I met you in the store while I was doing my Christmas shopping. I was looking for my wife. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. yes uh, say, Ruth, your coat's ripped up the back. No, no, those are tails. <laughs> I always dress like this on New Year's Eve. Well, ain't you the dandy? <laughs> Please, I'm in no mood to talk to you now. This is New Year's Eve, and I... I know, I know. That's why I'm down here in the city. I aim to do a little celebrating myself. Good, yes. <laughs> At the stroke of 12, I'm going to take a drink, blow a horn, and catch the bus back to Calabasas. <laughs> fine, fine. <laughs> if you want to join me, you're welcome. I've got a little snort here in my back pocket. No, thanks. I'm going home. Goodbye. Okay, Ruth. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. I wonder why he keeps calling me Rube. He was kind of friendly, though. Well, I better hail a cab now. See, it's kind of cold. I think I'll stop in here and get a cup of coffee first. Good evening, sir. 
Good evening. Would you like a nice table right here by the window? No, no, thanks. I'm all alone. I'll just... I'll just sit at the counter here. Oh, please come sit by the window. I'd like everybody to see how nice my customers dress. No. No, thanks. Some, some other time. Uh... All right. If you like to sit at the counter, all right. Go ahead. Thank you. Say, you know, we get a special $2 dinner tonight. Steak, mashed potatoes, string beans, and for dessert, nice supper pie a la mode. Well, if you sit by the window, I give it to you free. <laughs> No, no, thanks. I'll just have a cup of coffee at the counter. I don't know if I just want coffee or... Yeah, I guess coffee's enough. What'll it be? Coffee, please. Would you like a sandwich or some toast with it? No, thanks. Just coffee. Want a little cream with it? No, no, just black coffee. Okay. Here's your coffee. Thanks. Gee, I'm sorry about tonight. That's all right, Gloria. <laughs> Forget it, Gloria. Tonight. Mamie, Mamie, all the time it's Mamie. Could have let me know before the last minute. I'm sorry. I see you're wearing my corsage. And on that greasy uniform yet. <laughs> I don't want this coffee. I'm going home. I'll be through at three o'clock. At three o'clock, I'll be snoring. <laughs> Goodbye. Always blames everything on Mamie. Mamie did this. Mamie did that. Oh, taxi! Taxi! Here you are, driver. Thank you. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Who's that? It's me, Rochester. Boss, how come you're home so early? I thought you were going out tonight and celebrate. I was, but things didn't work out. Say, Rochester, I thought you were going out tonight. Oh, I am, I am. Well, had you better hurry? It's almost midnight. Boss, on Central Avenue, Father Time lingers till we get rolling. <laughs> really? Sometimes we roll right into February. <laughs> well, you can leave whenever you want to, Rochester. But... What are you going to do, boss? Oh, I'll just sit by the fire and read a book and then go to bed. Oh, boss, I hate to see you all alone on New Year's Eve. Yeah, that's all right. No, it ain't all right. I'm going to stay home and, uh, and I'm going to be right here with you. Oh, Rochester, you don't have to do that. Sure, boss. We'll greet the New Year together. Well, let's just... hey, we might have fun at that. Have we got any horns in the house? No, we sold them. <laughs> oh. Uh, we've got some Ohio State tennis left. We can wave those. No, no, they don't make any noise. Look, Rochester, it's almost midnight. You better run along. No, sir, I'm staying right here with you. All right, if you insist. I'll get a can of beer out the icebox and we'll drink to the New Year. No, no, Rochester. If you're willing to stay home with me on New Year's Eve, we're going to do this thing right. We're going to open a bottle of champagne. We're going to open a what? 
We're going to open a bottle of champagne. There's a cold one in the icebox. Now, hurry up. Yes, sir. Gee, it was nice of Rochester to stay. Maybe it won't be... Gee, it's midnight already. Rochester, hurry! Hurry up! Coming, boys! Coming! Here's the champagne, boys! Well, open it! Open it up! I am! I am! Here, here's the glass, boys! Good, good. Pour some in. That's well. Now, fill up yours. There. Well, Happy New Year, Rochester. Happy New Year, boss, and I hope we'll be together for many more. I hope so. And here's to it. Good old acquaintance be forgot and never brought to mind. Good old acquaintance be forgot and food packages have been improved and increased with more meats and fats that mean health to hungry children and families overseas. 22 and one half pounds of life-giving food for $10. Delivery guaranteed. Send your contribution to Nonprofit Care, Los Angeles or New York. That's C-A-R-E, Care, Los Angeles or New York. Ladies and gentlemen, to all my listeners everywhere, a very happy and prosperous new year from me, Jack Benny. And from me, Mary Livingston. And from me, Don Wilson. And from me, Dennis Day. And from me, Rochester. And from I, Bill Harris. <laughs> he's not grammatical, folks, but he's sincere. Good night, all. <laughs> Be sure to hear Dennis Day in the day in the life of Dennis Day. Stay tuned for the Amos Nanny Show, which follows immediately. And five, this is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. From January the 1st, 1950, that was the Jack Benny Show. For those of you in Delray Beach, you might want to use this opportunity to uh, go and get yourself something to drink in the kitchen or perhaps visit the, uh, the restroom just for a minute because we're going to talk about a few things here that we just heard on that show. Again, I thought that was kind of a strange ending. Maybe you didn't feel that way. Maybe they were trying to be sentimental. Anyway, I, I just I just found that just strange because I thought the show clipped along pretty good and then it had that ending. All right, a couple notes on here. Uh, the song, I've Got a Lovely Bunch of Coconuts. <laughs> I love that song. I remember uh, it was done one time on uh, Halls of Ivy one of my favorite episodes of Halls of Ivy. But you hear that song from time to time. I don't know if you know much about it. It was written in 1944, and the title was I've Got a Lovely Bunch of Coconuts. In 1950, it was done by the Freddie Martin Band, and the vocalist singing it was Merv Griffin. And their version sold over 3 million copies. And then the very next year, Danny Kaye did a version and it hit number 25 on the top uh, top 50 or top 100. So the song um, has kind of an interesting history here in the U.S. Uh, back around that time, around uh, 1950. The um, song celebrates the coconut toss. 
which was a midway game played at fairs, apparently, I believe, in England. The catchy chorus was what the barker would yell to passers-by while standing underneath the flare of the gaslight. He would invite the public to roll up, bowl a ball, a penny a pitch. The ball was either tossed or bowled, like in cricket, or pitched at the coconuts, and the object was to knock the coconut off the stand. We've seen games like that, using milk bottles and different things, but apparently this was originally coconuts. Isn't that interesting? Roll up, bowl a ball, a penny a pitch. Uh, let's see. Dennis Day referred to the Hooper rating when Jack was uh, saying such nice things about them. And, and Dennis said, oh, yeah, last year our Hooper was down and he spit in our eye. Well, the Hooper ratings, we've talked about this before, were the radio ratings. So if you had a good Hooper, that meant you had lots of listeners, according to the uh, to the rating. And then Mr. Kitzel mentioned taking his wife to Simon's Drive-In. Uh, I didn't know too much about this. I know as a kid growing up, drive-in restaurants were a big, big deal in Southern California and in other parts of the country. But it says, uh, I just did a little research. It said at one time, Simon's drive-ins dominated the Southern California drive-in restaurant craze. The Simon brothers had operated a chain of successful dairy lunch counters in downtown L.A., and in 1935, they decided to capitalize on the growing car culture of L.A., by opening auto-friendly locations in the emerging commercial centers of Wilshire Boulevard, Sunset Boulevard, and Ventura Boulevards. Simon's drive-ins were a complete departure from the drive-in buildings of the 1920s. The design included fondly remembered neon-lined roofs and pylons with Simon spelled out in giant backlit letters. 24-hour service was featured, and the doorless drive-ins uh, sported wide canopies trimmed in metal. I remember uh, some of the drive-ins. I hadn't thought about that until I researched this. Some of the drive-in restaurants, at least when I was a kid, didn't have any doors. Theoretically, they never closed. And so the waitresses would just come in and out. I suppose there was probably some way they could secure them if they needed to lock up. But they were just an open concept. It says the drive-ins were designed in a circular uh, fashion that uh, ensured that the many automobiles patronizing the establishment had ample room to maneuver and arrange themselves at, at convenient angles for their signature car hop service. The design of the restaurants or the drive-ins were to be equally eye-catching at night as they were during the day. The drive-ins had both direct and reflected lighting to carefully accent the lettering and outstanding architectural elements of the building. Isn't that interesting? Simon's Drive-In. So that's where Mr. Kitzel was going to take his wife. Um, we talked about this one other time, the term rube. That was mentioned in this, and Jack said, why, why does he keep calling me rube? Uh, I won't go into a lot of detail, but that was a circus term from like the early part of the 20th century, and uh, some of these circuses, traveling shows, as the farmers uh, would come into town, you know, the guys that were like the, the carnies would refer to them as rubes because they, they considered them naive, naive country folk. Okay, and, and of course you caught the big laugh there when, uh, when it was revealed that Gloria... 
<laughs> was working there in the uh, lunch counter where Jack went to get a cup of coffee. All right, more Jack Benny show in the weeks ahead. Uh, before we move on, Chester says we have a call. Hello, caller. This is Bob Bro on Boomer Boulevard. Who is this, please? Yes, Bob. This is uh, Lillian Butter, and I'm calling you from Goshen, Wisconsin. Lillian, your last name is Butter? Yes. I, I'm sorry. I've never met anyone whose last name was Butter. That's a very unique name. And you're from Wisconsin? Yes. The, the dairy state? Yes. Okay. <laughs> and what does... Uh, are you married? Yes. Uh, yes, Bob. I, I am married very happily for uh, 41 years now. We have four children, and uh, now we have seven uh, grandchildren. Well, that's really nice, uh, Lillian. What does, uh, what does Mr. Butter do? He's a dairy farmer. Of course he is, yes. Well, how can I help you, uh, Lillian? Well, Bob, I was just wondering. You, I think you misspoke there a minute ago. How is that? Well, you said that uh, Merv Griffin had done a song uh, about coconuts, and I don't think that could be correct. Merv Griffin was a talk show host for many years, and, of course, he produced Jeopardy and, and The Wheel of Fortune. Yeah, that's true, but he started off as a singer for Fre the Freddie Martin Orchestra. Are you sure? Well, I'll tell you what, Lillian. Uh, you and all the other little butters up there just gather around your radio because here is Merv Griffin with the Freddie Martin Band singing I've Got a Lovely Batch of Coconuts. Down at an English fair, one evening I was there When I heard a showman shouting underneath the flare I've got a lovely batch of coconuts there they are standing in a row Big ones, small ones, some as big as your head Give them a twist, a flick of the wrist, that's what the showman said I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts Every ball you throw will make me rich There stands me wife, the idol of me life Sing and roll a bowl, a ball, a penny, a pitch Sing and roll a bowl, a ball, a penny, a pitch Sing and roll a bowl a ball, a penny a pitch. Roll a bowl a ball, roll a bowl a ball, sing and roll a bowl a ball, a penny a pitch. Lovely bunch of coconuts. Every ball you throw will make me rich. Have a banana. There stands me wife, 
The idol of me life Sing and rowly bowly Ball a penny a pitch All together now Sing and roll a ball a ball a penny a pitch Harmony Sing and roll a ball a ball a penny a pitch Rowly bowly ball Roll a ball a ball Sing and rowly bowly Ball a penny a pitch Well, there you go, uh, Mrs. Butter, up there in Goshen, Wisconsin, and all your little butters. You uh, have to believe me when I tell you something. It's usually true. I, I never purposely lie to you, but that was Merv Griffin, along with the Freddie Martin, is it band or orchestra? Band, I think. And I have a lovely batch of coconuts. Now. that magical music going to take us back to Dodge City, Kansas in the 1870s for tonight's episode of Gunsmoke. And we've got a good one tonight. It originally uh, was broadcast on CBS on the 1st of October in 1955. This one features uh, all of the regular cast members. It's got Kitty in it and Doc and of course Chester and Matt. So We've got uh, William Conrad, we've got Parley Bear, we have uh, Georgia Ellis, and we have Howard McNear. We also have Virginia Christine, Lawrence Dopkin, and Dick Beals playing the, uh, the boy, in fact, the title boy in this, the Barton Boy. That's the name of the episode. So just sit back, relax, and here comes Gunsmoke.
Gunsmoke. Around Dodge City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Gunsmoke, starring William Conrad. The transcribed story of the violence that moved west with young America. And the story of a man who moved with it. I'm that man. Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. The first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job, and it makes a man watchful. And a little lonely. A lonesome town, Dodge City. A handful of sunburned buildings half lost in the empty prairie. With a few scrawny cottonwood trees along the plaza. And the river and the red clay bluffs to the south. A frontier town like all the others. Except for one difference. We're on the railroad. So about once a day, when the train starts whistling off in the east, the folks in Dodge listen and remember that they're part of a bigger world outside. A different world beyond the plains. Well, just looky there, Mr. Dillon. A brand new record this time, pulling four coaches in a baggage car. Yeah, they keep getting longer all the time, don't they, Chester? Why, in eight or ten years, I bet you'll see six and seven coach trains rolling into Dodge. It'd be more surprising if they'd ever get them in on time. Yeah, come on. Let's uh, pick up that strong box and take it over to the bank, huh? Look at there. Dudes with a dozen. Oohing and oohing around. <laughs> Just look at them. Dressed fit to kill. Now, they'll get over it. Some of them, at least. The rest of them will go back east. Well, there's one I sure hope don't. My. What? If you want to meet her, why don't you drop into Long Branch Saloon? She's going to work there? Do you know her, Mr. Dillon? No, but she's got that look. Hey, Ed! It's Matt Dillon. Open up. You know, this is what I ought to have been, Mr. Dillon. A baggage clerk. Oh, just one run a week to Kansas City and back and collect your pay. Yeah, that sounds pretty easy, doesn't it? Hey, Ed! He's probably asleep. Nothing else to do the whole trip. Yeah, I suppose so. Let me get up there, Chester. Maybe I can see through the window. See anything? No, not much. This glass is so dirty that... Chester! What's the matter? Go find Doc. I gotta break the latch on this door now. Hurry! Careful now, Chester. Bear down just a little harder. It's starting to give. Watch your hand, Chester. I'm watching. Ah, yeah. All right. That's it. Let's get her open. It's. Oh, 
There he is, laying over there in the corner. Yeah. Ed. Well, I guess he won't be answering, Matt. Two bullets right over the heart. Either one of them would have done the job. Yeah, but the baggage car was locked. Whoever done it couldn't have got out. Probably stepped out on the ledge there, slid the door shut behind him. The latch catches by itself. Oh, Matt. Yeah, what is it, Doc? There's another one down at the end of the car. What? What? It's just a kid. He's not over ten years old. And he's been shot. Same as the baggage clerk. Why, that's Ed's own boy, Billy Barton. Ed must have took him along on this one. Is he hurt bad, Doc? No, just grazed his head the way it looks. He'll pull through all right. Good. Look, I want to talk to the conductor and the train crew. You stay here and give Doc a hand, will you, Chester? Yes, sir, I will. Oh, uh, Chester, by the way, that soft job is open now if you want it. What happened, Matt? Somebody said the train was held up. Yeah, somebody got into the baggage car and killed Ed Barton. Shot his son. Took the strong box. Around $20,000, I guess. And they got away? Yeah, it looks that way. Train crew figures it must have happened near the Walnut Creek crossing. Whoever did it dropped off when the train slowed down for the trestle there. What about the boy, Billy? Oh, he'll live. Doc's patching him up now. Poor little kid. Ed was all he had, and now he's left with nobody. Yeah, it's too bad. It's going to be rough on Laura, too. She and Ed were planning to be married. That's what I heard. So I figured I'd better stop by and tell her. Well, maybe she can go back to Taggart, if he's still around. She left him when she and Ed started going together. But she's not one to be without a man. Marshal. Make it gentle, Matt. There's nothing gentle about death, Kitty. Marshal. Nobody will tell me anything. What's happened? Ed's been hurt, hasn't he? Yes, I'm afraid he has, Laura. I knew that's what it was. Is it bad? Couldn't be any worse. No. No. I'm sorry, Laura. He's dead. No, Marshal. No. Oh. Kitty, will you take care of her? I gotta go see if the boy's able to talk oh, yet. Don't worry about her, Matt. She'll be all right. Just get whoever did it, that's all. Don't let him get away with it. Well, I'm hoping the boy can help me in some way. As it is, I got nothing to go on. Nothing at all. Son, I, I got you all fixed up. Oh, now you're going to be all right. There's nothing to worry about. Well, I bet you've been hurt worse just from bumping your head. Oh, it ain't so hurting, Doc. I know, son. Make it sure as you can, Matt. He's pretty broke up about it. Yeah, all right, Doc. Doc. 
Holly. If you, uh, feel like talking. I'm all right. What happened, Billy? Well, we was maybe three or four miles the other side of Walnut Creek, and somebody knocked on the door of the car. The one that goes back toward the coaches. When Dad opened it, this man came in with a gun. Anybody you know? You ever seen him before? No, he, he had a handkerchief over his face. Uh, well, was there anything special about him? His shape, size, or clothes, maybe? Uh, no, sir. Nothing I can remember. I don't know who he was, Marshal, but I know I hate him. That, that's enough. Billy, what happened then when he came in with the gun? Well, he pointed at my dad and said he'd shoot him if he made a move. Dad grabbed for the shotgun on the wall. The man fired two times and Dad fell. I started toward him and the man fired again. That's all I remember. Ah, I see. You don't figure that you'd know this man if you saw him again, huh? No, I, I don't guess so. Not unless he talked. What? I'd know his voice all right, even if he's trying to fool me. Well, well why? Well, what was special about it? Well, I don't know exactly. It was, was kind of weak-like or something. It's hard to explain, but I'll know it. Any time I hear it. Well, we'll try to make sure you do hear it, Billy. Hey, you take it easy now. You get that head all healed up, huh? I will. Okay. Chester. Yes, sir. Uh, fix up one of the cells over at the jail, huh? I want to get the kid moved over there right away. Oh, why so, Mr. Gilman? But now the whole town knows Billy's alive. He's the only witness who can identify the killer. And the killer knows it. So Billy Barton moved into a cell in the Dodge City Jail. And Chester stayed with him most of the time to keep him company. And to keep him alive. Meanwhile, I combed the town from one end to the other. Brought in every gunslinger, saddle bum, and drifter I thought might fit the bill. Get your hands up. Stand still. Don't make a move. Well, what do you think, Billy? Does that sound anything like him? No, sir. I mean, maybe it's kind of like him. But he's not the one, Marshal. Yeah. All right, Chester, take him out. Yes, sir. Come on, Oh, and uh, bring in Hawkley, will you? All right, Mr. Dillon. See, Billy, it takes time, but uh, we'll get him sooner or later. This is a preposterous outrage, Marshal. This is an unmitigated insult. Man of my character and integrity to be dragged in here... You're a sniveling card sharp and you've been dragged into half the jails west of the Mississippi. Marshal, I beg your pardon. Just keep talking, Pegasus. Well, it's true. Of course, one or two occasions in the past I was accused of falsely, basely, unjustly, with deliberate malice. Uh, accused of certain more or less uh, criminal activities, <clears throat> which it goes without saying I was entirely innocent and blameless. It ain't him, Marshal. Regardless, His voice ain't nothing like it. Now, that's too bad. I've been trying to nail him on something for the last year. Libel proceedings. All right, Pegas. You can shut up now. Well, I've only begun I said that's enough. That. Throw him out, Chester, then bring in the next one. <laughs> Thank you.
much longer am I going to have to stay here, Chester? Well, that's kindly hard to say, Billy. Oh, it must have been over a week already. Oh, yeah, something like that, I guess. Uh, how about a nice game of checkers? Oh, I'm tired of checkers. Well, casino, then. That's a good, interesting game. I don't want I want to get out of here. Well, now, we got to give that head of yours time to heal up proper. Oh, that ain't the reason. I know why you and the marshal are keeping me here. Well, it's just because we're... Yeah, you think that man on the train's going to try and kill me. That's how come you're doing it. Now, whatever could give you an idea like that? You ain't going to find him. He wouldn't stay around here. He's halfway to St. Louis by now. Well, now, Billy, you just can never tell why that fellow might be... Sit tight, Billy. Yes, sir. Who is it? Who's there? Is that you, Chester? Oh, Miss Laura. Hey, just a minute. Sorry to keep you waiting, Miss Laura. Well, that's all right. Well, how are you, Billy? All right, I guess. Well, do you suppose I could interest a couple of hungry men in some home-cooked food? Oh, yes, ma'am, you sure could. Here, let me take that basket. Oh, look at that. Why, that's better than last year's church social. How's your head, Billy? All right, I guess. Well, I've got something here that's going to make it better in a hurry. Oh, what's that? Slice of rum cake. One of the girls I work with had it sent all the way from New York, and I talked her out of a piece of it, just for you. Well, now, what do you say for that, Billy? Thank you. Hi, oh, you're welcome, Billy. Hey, you'd better sit right down here and help us eat up some of this good food, Miss Laura. <laughs> well, I'd like to, Chester, but I got a change to get on over to the Long Branch. My work day's just starting, you know. <laughs> well, we, we sure do appreciate this. Well, I'll see you later. Uh, Billy, I I know it's sort of understood that you're going to go live with Miss Austy over at the boarding house when you leave here, but, well, I've, I've always wanted a little boy, one all my own, and I'd, well, I'd kind of like for it to be you. Well? Well, you don't have to answer now, but think it over, Billy. Yes, ma'am. Well... Good night, you two. Good night, Miss Laura. Well, now, what do you think about that? It's all right, I guess. All right? Well, I think it's just fine. Uh, Billy, let me get a knife from under my mattress, and we'll try out these vittles of yours. <laughs> No, not right now, thanks, Kitty. Hmm. It's Ed Barton's murder. Still bothering you, huh? Yeah, I guess so. Well, you can't win every hand. No, but this one's different, Kitty. Ed was killed in cold blood. And Billy, a kid of that age, shot down and left to die. Somebody's gonna pay for it, Kitty. You could be following a cold trail, Matt. Might have been a drifter, someone who never even came near Dodge City. No, I don't think so. For one reason. Only three people were ever told when those money shipments were being made. Me and Ed and Mr. Botkin over at the bank. And that killer knew. Knew exactly which trip to hit. Now, it was somebody from this town. Had to be. 
Well, it sounds that way, all right. The killer's here in Dodge, and the money's here. And sooner or later, I'm going to find them both. Well, I hope it's sooner, Matt. You're beginning to look like a scarecrow. <sighs> I'll make out. How's uh, Laura getting along? Oh, not too bad, I guess. She's kept it to herself, mostly. Hasn't talked about it. Might be better if she would. I suppose. I've heard that she started hanging around with Taggart again, though. Taggart? Uh-huh. I thought he went to Kansas City. Well, he did a couple of weeks ago. I guess he's back again. Anyway, one of the bartenders claims he saw him night before last over on the south side, and, of course, that's where Laura lives. Taggart, huh? <laughs> she's even started talking like him again the last few days. She's a regular parrot. You know that voice of his? Soft and sort of husky-like. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Thanks, Kitty. For what? I'll see you later. Chester, come on, open up. All right, I'm, I'm coming, Mr. Dillon. Well, it sure is good to see a face from the outside world, Mr. Dillon. Is Billy all right? Well, sure he is. Why wouldn't it be all... What's happened? I think I know who did it. Well, how are you making out, Billy? How much longer have I got to stay here, Marshal? Well, I think it's just about over now. Uh, say, where'd all this come from? Uh, Miss Laura fetched it. Oh, we had ourselves a real feed. At least I did. Billy wasn't very hungry. He didn't even eat the special slice of rum cake she brought for him. Special, huh? Mm-hmm. What'd you do with it, Billy? Oh, I'm sorry, Marshal, but I didn't want it. I give it to that old hound dog that's been hanging around. Oh, I see. Uh, Chester, I wonder if you'd step out back here for a second. All right, Mr. Young. We'll be right back, Billy. Yes, sir. Chester, go find Clint Murphy and have him come back here and keep an eye on Billy for the next hour. Well, ain't no need for Clint. I'll be here, Mr. No, you Dillon. won't. We're going to pick up a killer. I can't take any more chances. What do you mean? The dog. The one Billy gave his special kick to. It's lying out there by the edge of the street. It's been poisoned. No matter how many times you've done it before, the same thing always happens. Every time you start out to bring in a killer, you know what's waiting for you. And the muscles under your belt knot up, and your heart starts to pound. But after a few minutes, you go cold and loosen up. And then it's all right. You stop thinking then. Stop feeling anything. You just go out and do the job. Nice night. Kindly peaceful life. Yeah. I swear I don't know, Mr. Dillon. It just makes you wonder. What is it gets into people? I got no answer for you, Chester. That's her place there, the second one down. Yeah, I know. You think he'll be there? I think he'll be there. All right, stay clear, Chester. Watch yourself. Yes, I will. She was just using Ed Barton so she could find out the date of the shipment. That's right. I can't understand. Get out, Chester. 
There he is, there by the porch, Mr. Dillon. Come on. Over here by the back of the tree. He ain't got much cover there. We must have caught him unexpected. He won't stay there. He'll make a run for it. We'll wait him out. I don't know, Mr. Dillon. It don't look like he's... There he goes. Drop the gun, Taggart. You're under arrest. Your last chance, Taggart! All right, come on, Chester. Guess that's the end of it. No. Not yet. What? You wait here. Yes, sir. You killed him, didn't you, Marshal? Put that gun down, Laura. The only man in this world I ever cared about. And you killed him. You'd never stop me with one shot and you know it. I'd still have time to draw and kill you. You're not the man to draw a gun on a woman. I never have before. But a little while ago, I saw a dog lying dead in the street. And if you'd have had your way, it'd have been a kid instead. So you better put that gun down and take your chances with a jury. Because you got no chance with me. <laughs> You're under arrest. That kid. That's what beat us. The minute I heard he was alive, I knew it was starting to go wrong. It started long before that, Laura. What do you mean? When? The day you were born. Produced and directed by Norman McDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. The special music for Gunsmoke was composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Sound patterns by Tom Hanley and Ray Kemper. Featured in the cast were Virginia Christine, Richard Beals, and Lawrence Dobkin. Harley Bear is Chester, Howard McNair is Doc, and Georgia Ellis is Kitty.
Watch an entirely different Gunsmoke show tonight on your local CBS television station. Remember, Gunsmoke on TV tonight, 10 p.m. Eastern Time. And be sure and listen to Gunsmoke again on radio next week, transcribed for L&M Filters. October the 1st, 1955, that was Gunsmoke, the name of that episode, was The Barton Boy. Dick Beals was a good friend of a lot of people at Yesterday USA, Walden and uh, the Gassman brothers. Bill Bragg, uh, I know, met Dick Beals. Um, he, we just lost him in the last year or so, maybe two years, I don't know, I lose track of time. But he was always so good as the youngster. And he wasn't a youngster. I think he was in his 30s when he, when he probably did that episode. They mentioned that uh, Gunsmoke was on television that night. Let's just see which episode was on television. Let's see. October the 1st, 1955, Word of Honor. That was a previous uh, radio script. Uh, this one, of course, featured uh, James Arness and Dennis Weaver and Milburn Stone and uh, Amanda Blake. And it had Claude Aikens in it. Uh, the plot, Hank Worth, the son of wealthy rancher Jake Worth, is kidnapped and held for $20,000 ransom by three men. The kidnappers call on Doc to aid young Hank, who has been shot in the back while trying to escape. Unfortunately, Hank dies. The killers decide to let Doc go because he is the only doctor within 400 miles, and they fear that they might need his services someday. Before sparing his life and freeing him, however, they force the reluctant doctor to give his word of honor that he will never reveal their identities. Yeah, I remember that episode on the radio. It's very good. All right. Hey, did you notice on this this episode when uh, Chester was... And Chester, I, I've been wanting to ask you about this. Did you notice where he kept his knife when she brought in the food there to the jail? And Chester, well, here, just, just just listen to it here. Billy, let me get a knife from under my mattress and we'll try out these vittles of yours. I, I've never known anyone to keep their silverware un, under their mattress. Chester, do you, you always did that. <laughs> Chester just stood up out of his, his chair here and he's got a cushion he sits on. He lifted up the cushion and there's his silverware. Well, <laughs> I get. Yeah, you're always ready, always ready to eat. Chester is always ready to eat. If you want to hear more Gunsmoke episodes, just go to my website, theoldtimeradioshow.com, and there you will hear every episode of Gunsmoke we have ever played. I'm about six weeks behind in keeping that updated, six or eight weeks. We've had some things going on here in the family, some health issues and whatnot. And it takes it's time-consuming to get that all updated, but... It, it really doesn't matter because we still have about six or 700 shows on there. And a lot of them are gun smoke. So you can go over there anytime you want. Also, while you're there, if you want to join our mailing list, you can download uh, immediately uh, for at no charge about, it's about 50 gun smoke scripts, 48, 52. I never remember the exact number. 
uh, and we've talked about those before, but they're very cool. These are the actual scripts, copies of the actual scripts that the people use. They're, they're typewritten. They've got notes in the, in the margins, and they're a lot of fun to follow along as you're listening to uh, the respective episodes of Gunsmoke. More Gunsmoke next week. Oh my gosh, Chester is holding up his wristwatch. Chester still wears a wristwatch. He doesn't carry a cell. What is it? Time. Yeah, we're out of time. Okay. Well, I guess we need to pack up all of our shows and carry them back into the vault. Folks, that's going to kick things in the head for another week. And, of course, we'll be back in two weeks and we'll do it all over again. In the meantime, please do give us a, a listen over at the oldtimeradioshow.com where you can listen to all of the shows that we have ever played and it doesn't cost you a red cent. And uh, you can also join our mailing list, download those Gunsmoke scripts and we're trying to get things set up where we can send out other fun stuff. And I'll be talking more about that in the weeks ahead. I know I've been a little lax in sending out emails. But like I said, things have been busy. We're trying to sell our house. My wife's had some health issues. I had a few. So hopefully, though, everything is coming back together, especially as the weather starts warming up in the months ahead. All right, everybody, that's it for this time. We're going to go out tonight with a little Starland vocal band. I don't think we'll have time to get the whole tune in, but it's one of my favorites, one of those guilty pleasures, one of the ones that I never wanted to tell people that I bought. Although, in all honesty, I think this, I think I was already married. We were already married when, when this one came out. This is Bob Bro. I'm so glad you stopped by, and I am so glad you met me. 